If you could create one powerful change at work, what would it be? Would you change the way oncologists view your role and develop a successful head and neck cancer program for patients before, during, and after their treatment? Maybe you would change the way your clinical director values your services and gets them to approve funding for tools and continuing education the same way they fund PT and OT. Or maybe you would change the way oral care and thickened liquids are managed at your facility and be the reason behind reducing rates of aspiration pneumonia thanks to the protocols you implement. Whatever the change may be, I have good news. You can make it happen in the next six months. You're invited to join the Changemakers Collective, a strategic mentorship program Starting this June, I'm looking for medical SLPs who want to make some serious change at work or in their community, the kind of change that has a ripple effect. Throughout the six-month program, you'll develop a tangible goal and receive step-by-step guidance to achieve that goal. Don't have a specific goal in mind yet, but know that something needs to change. Our mentors can help you iron out the details. This includes 18 group mentor calls for advanced ASHA CEUs, templates, a private community, and high-touch support for high-level goals. Go to www.medslpcollective.com forward slash changemakers to learn more. Again, that's www.medslpcollective.com forward slash changemakers. Where did you start? So let's first start talking about, you know, what actually is NVHAP? You know, NVHAP is non-ventilator hospital-acquired pneumonia, and it's a subset of the diagnosis of hospital-acquired pneumonia, or HAP, which has become one of the most common types of hospital-acquired infections in the acute care setting. Welcome to the Swallow Your Pride podcast. I'm your host, Teresa Richard. I'm a board-certified specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders and founder of the MetaSLP Collective and MetaSLP Education. This podcast is dedicated to delivering the latest evidence-based practice to medical SLPs everywhere, while also recognizing that medical SLPs everywhere are doing the best with what they've got. Whether you are a new clinician seeking tangible tools for therapy or a seasoned vet stuck in a rut, my goal is simple, to help you advance your practice without feeling overwhelmed or underappreciated. This means that together we'll build confidence, broaden your knowledge, and reignite your passion for our field. So if you're listening, I encourage you to swallow your pride and be open to new ideas because at the end of the day, you and your patients deserve that kind of support. With that, let's dive in. Hello. Good morning, Erin. Hi. Good morning. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. I feel like I have known you for a bajillion years and I've just loved watching the evolution of your career because it's just so fun and exciting and all of the amazing stuff that you, you're just like me, you can't sit still and you have to always be diving into a new project. So I love it so much. So tell the people a little bit about yourself and then we'll, we'll get into all the fun things. Okay. Well, uh, my name is Dr. Erin McCarthy and um, I've been a speech pathologist for the last 26 years. Um, The majority of that time I've been working in um, the acute inpatient hospital setting. I completed my clinical fellowship year at Albany Medical Center in Albany, New York, and I became a board certified uh, specialist in swallowing and swallowing disorders in 2012. So I worked for 22 years as the um, speech pathology supervisor for acute inpatient at um, through Rochester Regional Health at Unity Hospital. And um, I've also served as adjunct professor for um, State University of New York at Geneseo, at Nazareth University here in Rochester, um, and recently I've been um, an adjunct at Stony Brook University down on Long Island. Um, so I stepped away from my awesome. position as acute 
uh, inpatient supervisor at the end of 2021 as I was finishing my clinical doctorate degree through Northwestern. And um, I really wasn't sure what I was going to do at that point in time. Um, I became employed by uh, Stryker Medical Company as the only um, first and only speech pathologist to serve on their expert speaker panel. And then I opened my own private practice uh, the beginning of last year, 2023. And I work exclusively with individuals across the lifespan who have um, feeding and swallowing issues um, and disorders. And I um, provide mobile fees services to the Rochester area. So I'm very excited about that. And then recently, very recently, I just became uh, director of clinical education for uh, the Duville University's um, brand new speech pathology program, graduate level speech pathology program in Buffalo, New York. So we're very excited about that. That is so exciting. Yeah. Yeah. I used to live like a block away from there and now they have an SLP program. So I know. How fun. I know. Well, come on back. Come home. <laughs> I know. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Florida has nothing to offer yeah. me anymore. So, Yeah. <laughs> Oh, well, thanks, Erin. Gosh, I, I, like I said, I just love hearing your journey and I've loved watching, watching the whole thing unfold. And then on top of that, you did some amazing presentations at ASHA and that's why we're here because I just, I, I'm trying to think of how to word this the, the right way. I've got a cold, so I'm a little under the weather, but I, I just love SLPs who sort of don't take the status quo in their facilities. I know sometimes we can just get so bogged down by the corporate structure that is these large healthcare corporations, yeah. but how can you introduce new programs? How can you push new research forward? How can you be a part of the bigger ecosystem and a part of the bigger conversation of patient quality, patient safety? And, and that's when I heard you were doing this presentation, I really, really wanted to bring this to the forefront because I just believe there's so much we can do if we're equipped with the knowledge and the support to really see these sort of opportunities through. So for sure. if you can talk a little bit about sort of what this project is and really the, the impetus for it and where it all came from. Yeah. So um, this uh, topic that I'm going to talk with all of you about today is all about oral care and how oral care is you know, directly related to the mitigation of um, developing non-ventilator um, hospital-acquired pneumonia with our patients. And, you know, how my team and I used oral care as a mitigating intervention uh, modality to help prevent NVHAP um, and how to build that effective oral care program. Okay. So about 19 years ago, my colleague and I started noticing that we were, you know, having to do a, a really significant amount of oral care with our patients before we could even, you know, start our um, clinical swallowing examination with them. And it just became a trend, became very prevalent to us. And, and we started talking about it saying, you know, why is this happening? Why are we having to do so much oral care? Why does it look like our patients' mouths have not been touched at all by a toothbrush since they got to the facility, <laughs> since they got to the hospital? So, you know, we had the typical oral care supplies. We had the toothbrush, the toothpaste, those, you know, wonderful little pink toothettes that we all use. Um, but obviously these supplies weren't working anymore. They weren't appropriate. Um, and so, you know, those patients who also could not spit on their own, who couldn't manage their own secretions, they were at risk for aspirating the toothpaste and the addition and additional suction supplies were needed for them at that point. So my colleague Jackie and I reached out to our local um, oral care supply vendor who quickly became part of our oral care team. 
And so that's, you know, what I want to talk to you all about today is, you know, the why and the how of how to build an effective oral care program at your facility. Yeah. Awesome. And I'd love for you to talk about sort of the size of your facility too, because I'm sure yeah. some people are listening and they'll be like, oh, it must be nice in a little 10 bed sniff. And that's not the case of where, <laughs> where I, I said that very sarcastically, but no, I, I do want people to understand the magnitude of, of the corporation that you work with and that this was not just a very small undertaking. This was a big project. So yeah, it was not. So um, my hospital that I was working at at the time, we were a community hospital. Again, we were um, inpatient, acute inpatient. So we had emergency rooms, we had ICU, um, we had med surgical units, um, we had a you know very robust surgical program, um, and so we had probably about 323 beds um, that my colleague and I would you know manage and and work with those patients throughout the hospital, um, and then. You know, in a, a few years after that, our hospital joined and merged with a larger um, hospital in the area to, to form Rochester Regional Health. Um, but by that point, we had already established our oral care program at our hospital. And so, you know, even to this day, it's just constantly evolving. The program is evolving and, you know, trying to spread this philosophy and this um, um you know, oral care program across all of the acute care hospitals and the SNFs um, and the facilities throughout the organization. So no, it wasn't, I mean, it was a smaller hospital in the fact that it wasn't a, a level one trauma hospital, but it was still a significant um, sized facility and hospital that we had to educate all of those staff and get all the providers and everyone on board. Yeah, yeah. All right, so where should we start? Where did you start? So let's first start talking about, you know, what actually is NVHAP, okay? So, um, you know, NVHAP is non-ventilator hospital-acquired pneumonia, and it's a subset of the diagnosis of hospital-acquired pneumonia, or HAP, which has become one of the most common types of hospital-acquired infections in the acute care setting. Pneumonia diagnosed in patients um, who have not been recently on uh, ventilators. So it's for any patient who, um, you know, comes into the hospital, doesn't have a diagnosis of pneumonia when they come into the hospital, but then while they're there, they've never been on an, a ventilator, but they suddenly develop pneumonia. So as cited in various articles <laughs> by Kenny Oka et al., Barb Quinn et al., and Tally et al., Estimated costs to a healthcare system to treat just one bout of pneumonia for just one patient ranges anywhere from forty to sixty-five thousand dollars, which just completely blows my mind every time I read that statistic. And while the exact costs of uh, NVHAP to U.S. healthcare um, facilities are difficult to quantify, the combined costs for all HAP types are estimated at about three billion dollars annually. And that includes post-acute and long-term healthcare costs. So in 2020, a group of U.S. healthcare leaders formed the National Organization to Prevent Hospital-Acquired Pneumonia, or NOHAP, and published a call to action regarding the current knowledge gaps and a practical roadmap for the prevention of NVHAP. Their findings are published um, in 2021 in the Journal of Infection Control and Hospital Epidemiology, and they cited that NVHAP affects one in every 100 hospitalized patients, 
extends the overall hospital length of stay by up to 15 days, requires ICU admission in up to 46% of patients, increases antibiotic use, and is associated with readmission to acute care in up to 20% of cases. You know, NVHAP is not as well studied as ventilator-associated pneumonia or VAP due to the fact that historically hospitals have focused primarily on VAP since they're mandated to document and report their instance rates for this type of infection. In addition, since NVHAP is considered to be a preventable hospital-acquired infection, it's not reimbursable by CMS or the Center for Medicare and Medicaid. However, it is considered to be more common and occur more regularly than ventilator-associated pneumonia. VAP is often treated with bundles of nursing care specific for taking care of patients in the ICU, for example, the ABCDE bundle of care, which actually does include dedicated oral care. However, at this point in time, there's no predefined oral care program that's designed to mitigate the risk for NVHAP. Crazy. <laughs> it is crazy. It is crazy. <laughs> I know. I, I feel like I've like... You, you like hear those stats like in passing, but like to hear the magnitude of that all together, it's like, dang, what are we doing? Well, and the thing that always just, you know, that I find incredible is the fact that oral care is just such a simple mitigating, you know, intervention right. that we can do with our right. patients. Right. Like, how are we not doing this on a regular basis, you know? And, um, you know, I had to do a a capstone project for my clinical doctorate program, and I focused it on oral care and, you know, building an effective oral care um, team and program. And when I would explain my capstone project to, you know, my family or friends or someone who is not a speech pathologist, (laughs) they would say to me, like, wait, 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 what? (laughs) Like, people are not getting their teeth brushed in the hospital? What are you talking about? (laughs) They just, it, they just couldn't comprehend it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So some of the signs and symptoms that we need to um, be aware of as speech pathologists, um, when we're doing chart reviews and looking um, at our patients prior to going in and, you know, doing our clinical swallowing assessments with them, Um, you know, we need to determine for um, NVHAP, you know, it, that diagnosis typically develops within 48 hours of admission to the hospital. Again, the patients are not coming into the hospital with a diagnosis of pneumonia. They are coming in with a different diagnosis, and then they start to develop these signs and symptoms of, of NVHAP while they're in the hospital. Um, patient you know, has evidence for leukocytosis, um, meaning an elevated uh, white blood count. They're febrile their chest x-ray is positive for an acute infiltration, and they typically demonstrate um, reduced oxygenation for then which they need support. So those are the things that we need to be looking for um, and kind of aware of in our chart reviews of these patients. Um, And that will raise red flags for us as we start to do these chart reviews thinking, okay, do they have um, NVHAP that we need to be aware of? So then, you know, why is oral care important? I mean, obviously we know why oral care is important, but how do we make our providers and our nursing staff aware of why it's important? Um, When I first started this journey, you know, many of the questions that 
my providers and nursing staff were posing to me were, you know, well, you know, why are you, why are you talking to us so much about oral care? Yeah, we get it. You know, we need to brush their teeth. Um, or why are you as a speech pathologist concerned about pneumonia? Like, what does that have to do with you? You know? Um, and so what I decided at that time was I really needed to, you know, come to them with research and come to them from the literature and say, okay, this is what my justification is as to why and why this is as important to us as a speech pathology profession. So I'm sure all of your listeners are very familiar with the seminal article by Susan Langmore et al. from 1998, Predictors of Aspiration Pneumonia. Um, and it cited the fact that patients who are dependent for um, oral care, that's a primary risk factor for the development of pneumonia. So if the patient is unable to perform oral care on their own or requires assistance to get up, getting their supplies, et cetera, their likelihood of completing oral care is reduced. And then this puts them at an increased risk for aspirating you know, oral flora and their um, bacteria-laden biofilm, um, which then places them at increased risk for NVHAP, okay? And we often see this too with patients who are in skilled nursing facilities. We know that the literature cites that oral care in, in skilled nursing facilities tends to be um, less than for those patients who might be in an acute care facility. Um, Karen Scheffler, do you know Karen? <laughs> she's amazing. I love Karen. I do know Karen. Yeah. yeah she's a yeah. pathologist, yeah. obviously. She wrote an article in 2018 for the ASHA Leader titled The Power of a Toothbrush. And in it, she states that for healthy, non-immunocompromised individuals, you can collect up to 10 billion microorganisms with just one scrape of your teeth in the morning before we get out of bed and go brush our teeth. And so I always say to everyone that I present this to, I'm like, I don't know about you, but that makes me just want to go brush my teeth right now. <laughs> just thinking. Yes. About that. Yeah. Yes. I did. I was, I got down this like rabbit hole of, you know, I, I got really into this whole like immune health thing just for my own issues, like in the last year. Yeah. And I, this is totally anecdotal. I have zero evidence to, to support this, but I got, you know, down this rabbit hole of like those tongue scraper things that look really bizarre yeah. mm -hmm. that saying like using one of those first thing in the, like literally the first thing you do, get out of bed yeah. and go over to the sink and like scrape yeah. the like germs off your tongue. Yeah. And it like sounds, it sounds like knowing what we know, I'm like, that makes so much sense. And like, so I do it and it's like the crap that comes off oh. my tongue, like first thing in the morning, I'm like, and usually I go and get a drink of water. Yeah. So I think I'm like, okay, this yeah, is disgusting. The stuff that I'm getting off my tongue, putting it yeah. into the sink. And usually I would go and drink it down into my own system. Yeah. Correct. yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. But you are, you know, you're, you're healthy, you know, you have a good immune system. So ish. Yeah. Ish. Yes. So <laughs> You know, even yeah. if you do absorb that into your system, or let's say, God forbid, you might aspirate yeah. a little something, your your defense mechanism is sufficient enough that you won't have any negative complications from it. But our patients, however, you know, they already come yeah. in immunocompromised. They already come in fragile and vulnerable. So, you know, they're definitely at a greater risk for, um, yeah. you know, this stuff happening. And again, you know, when I'm doing education with my medical staff, I say to, you know, the nurses and I say to the patient care techs, like, what is the first thing 
you know, or one of the first two things that you do first do when you get out of bed in the morning, you brush your teeth, you know, um, yeah. hopefully that's the answer for most people. Um, but yeah, I mean, so why wouldn't we want to do that for our, you know, immunocompromised medically fragile patients, right? Yeah. Yeah. Let, let me ask you, Erin, because you said that you led, you know, when you went to the medical team first leading with the research. Yeah. Was there any sort of pushback on the research that you presented? Were they picky about what journals you pulled it from or what professions you pulled it from? I'm just curious as to your experience with that, because I know sometimes we hear things like, well, our doctors don't respect that journal or our doctors only want research from this profession or. Yeah. Yeah. So curious to hear your methodology there. No, I mean, they really didn't. I didn't get any pushback from any of it because I had such a, a diverse selection of journals that I had yeah. pulled it from, you know, and I wasn't just citing from speech pathology, from the dysphagia journal, um, from the ASHA leader. I had pulled from chest. I had pulled from, you know, critical care nursing. I had pulled from, you know, the, the um, ICU annals. Um, so, I mean, you know, they really, um, you know, they couldn't push back too much from it, you know, and I also had, um, articles written by pulmonologists and, um, so it was a really diverse range of articles and literature that I had pulled from. Um, and I, you know, have those references that I can share with your audience, um, for sure. So yeah, I, I really didn't get any pushback, which was amazing, you know, and then the more. Yeah. The more that I talked about it and the more of the, you know, more of the staff that I got on board, then it started to kind of leak out to other people. I had geriatricians coming to me and saying, okay, you know, how can we get this information over to the skilled nursing facilities? And, um, you know, how can we implement something in the ICU? And um, so, yeah, so the more I started to talk about it and the more leverage I gained and the more education I did, it really seemed to kind of take hold, which was great. Good. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Love that. Yeah. Um, All right. So where, where to after, after the data dump? Yeah. So after the data dump. So, um, you know, one of the other significant articles that I do want to talk about is um, uh, Barb Quinn and Diane Baker, um, who are both nurse practitioners. And they work out on the West Coast. Actually, they both work at um, Stryker now with me. They're both um, expert speakers for Stryker. And um, they piloted a program in 2014 at their hospital system, um, uh, Sutter Health in Sacramento, California. And so they were finding that, um, you know, bacteria found in dental plaques have been found to be a causative agent for um, hospital-acquired pneumonia in several studies with a reduction in pneumonia incidence following institution of an effective oral care regimen for patients. So in 2014, they published the results of their HAPPY initiative, which outlined um, the positive impacts of their program that they instituted. And their results were that they found a decrease in NV-HAP by 38% in their patient population an estimated eight patient lives were saved, and the system's, system was able to save um, $1.72 million in associated healthcare costs. And, you know, I feel like these numbers are really significant, especially in our current healthcare climate, where all healthcare systems are looking for cost-saving measures as well as improved patient yeah. care outcomes. 
So, you know, taking those numbers to, I always say this to everyone, you know, um, you know, know the literature, do your research, know the data and, and take, take that data, take those numbers to your healthcare leadership because they can't argue with math. You know, they can't argue with the statistics and the data and the proven data. Um, and at the end of the day, you know, healthcare organizations are, are a business, you know, and so they, they want mm-hmm. to do the best for our patients, obviously, but they also want to do so in a um, cost-effective manner. Yeah. Talk to me a little bit about, you know, sort of, I think sometimes we get lost in the, you know, what's that saying? We get lost in the forest among the trees. (laughs) Yeah. 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 But I think a a lot of the rebuttal that I've heard in in different facilities about this is like, well, we can't, like our CNAs and our nurses are already overloaded. How can we add to their workflow even more? Mm -hmm. And I think that's such a small excuse, for lack of a better term, compared to the huge magnitude of of the issue and, and really the drastic cost savings if we could figure out how to get this to be part of the overworked nurses workflow. Right. And I, I would, I don't know if that issue came up at all or how did you, how did you navigate that? Oh yeah. It constantly comes up. I mean, it constantly comes up. Yeah. So, you know, what we're saying is that, you know, when you're in there in the morning doing morning care with your patient, I mean, the nurses and the patient care techs are sometimes in those room for, you know, 30 minutes, 45 minutes. And I totally get that. It, that's 45 minutes for one patient. And then you've got to move on to the next patient and do that all over again. And I, and I get that, but oftentimes what we're seeing is that, you know, the patients are cleaned, their bed sheets are changed, they're moved to their chair, and then they walk out and oral care has not been done. So we really did the education of saying, you know, while you're in there, just do mouth care with the patient. And a lot of the patients, when I was going through and doing audits, um, to see how effective our, our program was and how often oral care was being done. You know, and I would talk to the patients, a lot of these patients, yes, they might not be able to get up and get their own oral care supplies, but if they're sitting in their jerry chairs or they're sitting up in bed and you bring them the, the supplies and just set them up with it, they're able to do their own oral care. You know, you get them a toothbrush, you get them a toothpaste, you know, a kidney basin so that they can spit out into in a cup of water and they're independent with oral care. They just couldn't get their own supplies. And so it's not like you have to be doing oral care with every single patient, you know, 23, 24 patients on your unit. You just have to be able to, okay, oh, I'm going to go get you your, your supplies that you need and set you up for this while I do something else, while I brush your dentures for you, or I, you know, um, clean up your room or brush your hair, you know, get you a washcloth to wash your face. So, um, you know, I think a lot of times people just think like, well, I have to do that for every single patient. So it becomes just part of that extra load where that's not necessarily true. Um, yeah, thank you. Thank you for clarifying. Yeah. Well, and the other thing that we did, we really worked, um, very hard with our, um, PT and OT colleagues as well. So my OT colleagues, um, what they did is they set up um, like an oral care corner in the gym. And so when patients would come down to the gym, part of their activity would be, you know, getting up, walking over to the bathroom or walking to the oral care supply, getting their supplies, completing oral care. So maybe they're doing it in as part of their occupational therapy session. 
Um, and so that was another thing that also helped because if they couldn't get it done in their room with nursing for whatever reason, then, you know, we knew that at least once a day when they were coming down for occupational therapy in the gym, they could accomplish it there. Yeah. I love that. That is like the impetus or that's like the stereotypical, like how can we co-treat, like, you know, meet everybody's needs all at once. Like that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. So awesome. Thank you to your, thank you to your OTs and PTs. Yay. They were so, (laughs) and you know, the the other part was, is that I was hearing from them too, is that when, you know, the patients were coming down for therapy, they were noticing that their mouths were clean, their breath was fresh, um, that they didn't have, you know, cracked lips, they didn't have dried secretions on their lips or on the front of their teeth. They were noticing the benefits as well. And just for, you know, the patient's well-being, mental well-being, feeling like, oh, I've cleaned my mouth out, you know, like I can talk better. I, I sound clearer to you today. Um, so it just, it also helps the patient just to feel better, you know, in and of themselves. Yeah. 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 Good. Awesome. Yeah. I love this. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, so, you know, we talked about, you know, there's so much literature out there now in the body of literature supporting, you know, oral care, um, benefits for mitigating NVHAP is growing, definitely growing. Um, it's still in its infancy phase, but um, it's, it's constantly evolving. Um, we also know that, you know, oral care can have positive impacts for um, other diagnoses, such as, you know, cardiac patients, for diabetes, for cancer patients. Um, and so that, that body of literature also needs to continue to grow. Um, yeah. Let's see what else. So some of the barriers I just want to talk a little bit about the barriers because, you know, everybody says this in presentations that I give, like, well, you know, we've had a hard time establishing an oral care program. Um, And and I always say to them, like, okay, what are your barriers when when you're trying to do this and you're trying to start up a new initiative? Like, what are you finding? And all of the examples that they give are also supported in the literature. So leadership buy-in is a huge one. education to the staff who's constantly turning over. Um, We see that just on a, you know, a revolving door of staff. Um, Staff recognition that oral care is is mandatory for every patient versus just optional. Oh, I'll I'll get to that when I can. Um, Having necessary and effective supplies. You know, so many, so many um, patient care techs and nurses think that just by dipping the pink swab into a thing of water and just kind of like going through the mouth, that's oral care. Okay, oral care has been done. And that's not, I have to educate them on the fact that oral care is actually getting in there and debreeding the the oral mucosa, the teeth, the gums, the hard palate, um, the tongue, and debreeding that of that um, bacteria-filled biofilm, that's oral care, not just swabbing it out with water. You know, documenting completed oral care, that's another big thing that we would find on these audits is that, um, you know, we would go through and the nursing staff, the patient care tech staff, and even the patients might say, oh yeah, mouth care was done. They, they brushed my teeth this morning. I brushed my teeth. They gave me the supplies, blah, blah, blah. But then we would go to the chart and it wasn't documented. So as we all know in the medical field, if it's not documented, it hasn't been done. So the documentation piece was another big thing that we had to overcome and really learn about. 
Um, and then just empowering the patient and their caregivers to ask for oral care supplies, educating them on the fact that we actually had a toothbrush and toothpaste for them that we stocked. They didn't have to bring it from home. So many people would often say to me like, oh, I forgot my toothbrush and toothpaste at home. Well, we actually have them at the hospital so we can supply that to you. So just empowering them to say, oh, I need those supplies given to me so that I can complete my own mouth care in the morning. Um, and then certainly, you know, after all of that is done, making sure that we're tracking NV uh, HAP incidence rates to see how the impact of our program and our initiative is impacting that. Yeah. So, um, you know, how do we establish an effective oral care program? We've talked about some of the components thus far, but because there's no standard oral care program out there, there's no standard protocol on how to establish one either. So there was really nothing for me and my team to refer to in the literature back in 2008 um, when we were starting to look at this. So we really just kind of um, started to do what we felt was right and then use the processes that we had implemented for other quality improvement initiatives that we had started at the hospital um, and just kind of you know go along that vein. So the first thing, like I said, was you know, going to the literature, knowing your data, knowing your information, and then building your team, you know, um, picking out the team members that you want to work with on an interprofessional um, uh, modality to establish this effective program. So I created um, an oral care uh, committee for our acute care hospital. We were uh, the only oral care committee in an acute care hospital in the Rochester, New York area, I think in the Western New York area, but I could be wrong about that. Um, and we had nurses, we had patient care techs, we had occupational therapists, we had um, infection preventionists. Um, we had our oral care uh, supply vendor sit as like a, you know, an honorary member. Um, and then we had a physician um, as the, uh, we had a, um, an infection preventionist as our physician advisor. So um, we had a really robust team and we would meet, initially we would meet quarterly and then we started to meet every other month just to kind of keep the momentum going with the initiatives and the education and the, and the projects that we were trying to, um, to carry out. Yeah, so, so talk to me a little bit, Erin. I'd like to know more specifics about sort of exactly who you had on the team, but then also if there was a specific like protocol that you guys followed up through the chain of command, or if there was like a specific like proposal template that you had to go through, like were there actual steps to getting this implemented or how did that look? Um, there weren't, there weren't any steps because we didn't okay. we yeah. know how, yeah. you know, and again, like I said, in the literature, yeah. there was there was nothing to you know tell us kind of how to implement this because in 2008, oral care was not being focused on as much as I feel like it is yeah. now, and it's still not even now being focused on as much as we would like it to be, right? So, no, yeah. again, I mean, we really just kind of went through the stages and said, okay, this is what we've done with other initiatives. So we've done our literature review. We formed our committee, um, you know, we, we had our committee meetings. We said, these are the things that we want to outline as having, getting accomplished. Um, and that's really how we kind of set our goals, you know, and they included education goals, 
they included making sure that we got the appropriate supplies. So we worked very closely with our oral care vendor to make sure that we had um, suction toothbrush kits, that we had oral moisturizer tubes, that yes, we had more of the swabs, but that we had, you know, yank hours, that we had tubing. Um, and so, you know, also working closely with nursing leadership and medical leadership to make sure that we could actually purchase those supplies and that it worked within our um, financial benchmarks for the organization. I went to um, value analysis uh, meetings, many meetings to say, okay, these are the, the types of oral care supplies that we want to purchase. We did product analysis tests with different oral care supplies, um, some that were, you know, more cost effective and some that were a bit more, you know, um, I don't want to say expensive, but a little bit more costly. Um, and so we would do product analysis with using them with our patients. And we would go in and use the different products with the patients and then ask the patients, so what did you think about that? You know, was it comfortable for you? Did you like it? Um, you know, do you feel that your mouth is clean? Do you feel like your teeth are clean? Um, and we wouldn't tell them what supply, you know, supplier it was or what brand it was, but they would give us honest feedback like, oh gosh, no, that toothbrush was really rough. Um, I have little, you know, toothbrush bristles out in my mouth. I need to take them out. Uh, I didn't like the taste of that. So we really used that patient feedback to, to guide the way um, the supplies that we wanted to purchase for our um, organization. Um, and then like, gotcha. yeah, and that's what I meant. If, if you had to do, yeah, yeah if, if you had to do different analyses and things like that within your organization. Yeah. And, and that was, you know, that was really fun to be able to do that, to, to actually get the patient's feedback, because I think so often, you know, some of these decisions are made and we're making them from the mindset of the organization or what we need to accomplish, what our own agenda is. But then we also need to take into account, well, what is, what is the patient feedback from that? You know, how do they feel about that intervention? Um, you know, how is that impacting, you know, how they feel or their care at that moment in time? So that was actually really interesting for me to kind of, you know, get that feedback back from them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, over the years, as we started to kind of like streamline our oral care supplies and really get it into a good um, niche, we found that we were able to save over $47,000 annually um, for the hospital based on the um, uh, types of supplies that we were purchasing and how much we had streamlined the supplies. Um, so did we buy just, you know, Q4 hour kits? We bought those for the ICU and for the respiratory step-down units, and then we would purchase Q8 hour kits for the other medical surge um, units throughout the hospital. And we just really streamlined what types of um, supplies we had and that we were purchasing. And, and that was a huge cost savings for the hospital. That's great. Um, you know, we also had to then work with, you know, nursing education um, and the director of clinical practice to develop uh, oral care protocol and a policy and procedure um, for the organization. We review it every two years. Um, we add, you know, more um, citations and reference to uh, references to justify um, the oral care protocol at that point in time. But um, this is a really great reference for the nursing staff to have and the medical staff to refer to. And then we post it on our um, internal um, intranet for them to access. 
Um, what else? And then education. We did a lot of education as our oral care committee. So we would do, um, you know, we would educate the patient care techs, the nursing staff, the, the um, APPs and the mid-levels, our physicians, like I said before, the occupational therapists, the physical therapists, the patients and their family members, just to, to let them know what we had available for oral care and what could be done. We participated yep. in several um, educational opportunities. So monthly new nursing orientation, patient care orientation. We did the annual nursing competency fair for two days. We would do town hall rounding where members of my oral care committee would go to each unit and they would, um, you know, educate the staff on how to complete oral care, what the supplies were, you know, how to connect the suction tubing and to the suction canister, to the suction toothbrush kit um, so that you could get its maximum uh, use. Um, we did participated in run the codes, which are ICU uh, training days and ICU step down unit training days in the moment teaching, you know, documentation within our speech pathology notes. So lots of different educational opportunities to, you know, let the, the overall medical staff know the importance of oral care and how to complete it. Awesome. Um, talk to me about, did you guys have to keep like, I guess what was sort of the momentum or the motivation to keep this going? Did you have to keep very strict data or outcomes or anything? And did you meet to talk about those things? Like I, I would just love to hear what that looked like. Yeah. So I felt like, um, at times I definitely felt like, you know, oral care was consuming my, <laughs> consuming my life. There were times when I was I'm sure, yeah. talking about oral care. Um, but yeah, so we would, um, I had an excellent, um, excellent nurse who, um, was the co-chair of the oral care committee with me and she was phenomenal. She would go and she would do, um, weekly audits on every single med surge unit. And we had 12 med surge units in our hospital and she would do weekly audits on every single unit to figure out, you know, was oral care being done? Were the supplies posted? Um, were they available? And what about documentation? So we would get, you know, really great numbers and documentation from that. And then we would talk about that in our oral care committee meetings. Okay, where is, where is the breakdown? Where's the gap? What areas do we need to address? How can we address those areas? And we would, you know, talk about and brainstorm different ideas that we could um, implement with the medical staff and the nursing staff to try to get oral care, you know, completed more regularly. Um, and then I, you know, I would um, usually meet with the infection prevention team and the nurse practitioner who was in charge of that team um, to talk about, okay, how can we, you know, track the, track the data? How can we run some reports? How can we see, you know, how can we do point prevalent studies based upon, um, you know, certain units, certain populations um, to see in, in the height of flu season to see what is our um, incidence rate of NVHAP and is it going up? Is it going down? Does it, is it, you know, unit dependent? And then what do we do about that? So we were doing a lot yeah. of, um, outcomes and, and, um, tracking and data. Um, one thing I want to talk about is, so in the spring of 2021, 
we actually completed a really exhaustive audit of all the med surge units throughout the hospital. And at that time we found that, so 88% of patient rooms did have oral care supplies present and stocked. 58% of, of patients required enhanced oral care. So that meant that they had to have oral care completed with like a suction toothbrush kit. Um, and 55% of that 58% of patients who needed enhanced oral care had actually had oral care completed. However, um, this audit showed that only 22.4% of oral care was actually documented in our EMR. So for us, I, we were like, okay, documentation is still an issue. You know, how can we correct that? Yeah. And so for an example of what do we do with this data, you know, we created um, what we call a knowledge builder. And so we created this step-by-step -step identification of how nursing goes in and, and accesses where they're supposed to document oral care, how to document it, um, how to save it to the EMR. And um, so we created this knowledge builder. And again, that's, you know, accessible for all nursing staff to access on our um, internal intranet. Um, and so that was designed to, you know, help with the documentation completion. Crazy. Um, how, how did you, how did you decide like what to study? Like, did you, was that something you picked out when you were doing your capstone or did you, were there sort of clinician researchers within your organization that helped you decide what the data points were going to be that you were going to track? Yeah. So um, what we decided to study really was based upon the literature. And um, I would, okay. I would contact, like I spoke with Barb Quinn several times. I spoke with Diane Baker, the nurse practitioners from Sutter Health. Um, you know, I was um, meeting with uh, Kathleen Bowman, who is another uh, nurse practitioner, nationally renowned, who talks about, you know, um, mitigating pneumonia and, and VHAP in the, in the acute care setting. Um, so I was talking with all of these experts about, you know, what are the most important things that we need to look at? I was, um, you know, talking to the oral care supply vendor who also was, was um, well-versed in what the data points should be. Um, obviously the literature, I just kept delving into the literature and going down rabbit holes to see, you know, what's out there, what do we need to be looking at? You know, one of the things that we didn't address for the longest time was our surgical population. Um, and the, the surgical literature is not really um, reflective of oral care practices in that population. Um, it's, it's growing, it's definitely growing, but the most, um, for cardiac surgical patients, that's where the most data and the most literature is that talks about oral care and how to, how to mitigate that post-surgical NVHAP in the acute care setting. So um, in 2019, I actually went to um, our surgical team and said, okay, I really think we should be looking at implementing an oral care, a dedicated oral care program for our surgical patients, both elective, mandatory, inpatient, outpatient, you know, across the whole surgical um, surgical department to try to reduce any incidence of NVHAP while they're in the hospital and after they've been discharged. And so um, that was another talking point that I got from talking with the experts and the literature to say, now this is what we need to focus on. And so these all became our quality improvement initiatives that we continually worked on with regards to oral care.
Awesome. Yeah. I love it. How, how often did you, you, you feel like you were just inundated in oral care. How often did you guys meet to sort of look at this data? Was it weekly? Was it monthly? Did you have dedicated oral care meetings or was it just part of sort of the overall value analysis of projects going on in the hospital? Yeah. So our oral care uh, committee did meet, um, like I said, we had met quarterly at first and then we decided okay. that we needed to start meeting every other month just because it really seemed like oral care was um, gaining some momentum and we wanted to continue that momentum. Um, and then especially, you know, in the last few years with COVID and we've had so many travelers come into our organization and we've had such a, you know, such a um, overturning of staff, we needed to make sure that that education was ongoing. Um, and yeah. so, you know, like I said, I had left my position at the end of 2021. Um, so COVID was dissipating a little bit. And I know that, you know, the, the new team that has taken over um, my department, um, they're still focusing very heavily on oral care and they're um, actually working quite closely with um, um, like a, a data analytics team to kind of, you know, come at it from a uh, cool from a new perspective so that they can continue that education and helping to maintain those outcomes. Cool. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. This is great, Erin. Yeah. yeah. Anything else that we didn't cover? Anything else you want to mention? No, I mean, you know, it's a lot of work. I mean, I, I know that it's a lot of work and, and sometimes it can seem daunting, but again, it's such a simple initiative and, and not a simple initiative. I'm sorry. It's a simple intervention that can be done with all of our patients. Yes. And it really does help the patients just to feel better. You know, whenever I'm sick, you know, I always want to first brush my teeth and then wash my hair. <laughs> and that just somehow makes mm -hmm. me feel better. Right. And so we want to yeah. be able to do that for our patients too. And <clears throat> I'll just tell you this one quick story. Um, so I had this one patient who, um, it was a Monday morning. He came down to the, uh, radiology fluoroscopy suite to do a modified barium swallow study with me. I'd never met him before. My colleague had seen him over the weekend and he had been in the hospital for probably like five days, I'll say. And when I was doing the chart review in the morning, all of the nursing notes documented him as being, um, confused, delirious, aphasic, um, dysarthric. And so, you know, I was expecting all of those things when he came down to the fluoro suite. So he comes down there and I first open his mouth before the radiologist ever comes in. I have him open his mouth for me so I can do a quick oral mech with him. And his mouth was just atrocious looking and oral care clearly had not been done for a significant amount of time. So as you know, there's not a lot of oral care supplies in the radiology suite. Um, so my radiology technologist got me everything that she could. We hooked up suctioning. We got, you know, the yank hour. Um, and I just went to town on doing oral care with this gentleman. And it took me quite a few minutes, probably like up to 10 minutes to really get his mouth clean. And to a point where I felt safe giving him PO trials for the study for the instrumental swallow study. And when he was, when I was done, he looked at me and he said, oh my God, that feels so much better. This guy was clear. He was lucid. He was not confused. He was A&O times four. 
He was not a phasic or dysarthric. And so it just is, shows the power of oral care and how it can impact your patients and how it can impact your perception of your patients and how your patients are being yeah. treated. Yeah. Um, and I just I yeah. will never, ever forget that story because it was so powerful to me. And I talk about it every single time I, I talk about oral care with, with anyone. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's just such a, you know, we get so carried away with the really, really complex treatments and interventions. And sometimes there's so much that can be done just very simplistically <laughs> that really just can restore a lot of dignity to our patients and, you know, just create that trust that, okay. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you, Erin. This was so, so, so helpful. Um, we will have show notes. So if you're interested in checking out some of the references that Aaron used. Um, we'll make sure that we stick those in the show notes because I know this is a wonderful episode and hopefully a lot of oral care initiatives will kick off because of this. So I think that's, it's something that I, I think a lot of people always talk about, like, I would love to get this going. I would love to get this going, but you've actually done it and you've done it in a, in a fairly large healthcare system. So I really wanted to talk to you about what that looked like. And thank you for sharing the barriers yeah. too, because I know that's always not the fun stuff, but it's inevitable. So it's inevitable. <laughs> and I think we have to be aware of the fact that, yeah, it's not going to be an easy go of it, but it's absolutely doable. And um, it's so, so beneficial, so beneficial from just yeah. on multiple levels. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much, my friend. I appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And that's a wrap for this episode. As always, thank you so much for listening. And if you'd like to download the show notes from this episode, please visit swallowyourpridepodcast.com. There you can also sign up for our email list so that you'll never miss another episode. If you do like what you hear, then please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or share it on social media with your friends and colleagues because that is what keeps these episodes coming. If you'd like to be a guest, share feedback, or request a topic to be discussed on the show, please email podcast at teresarichard.com. Thank you so much for listening and we'll catch you next week.